Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hello and welcome back everybody to our 27th episode. It's mid-November 2021 and we have movement out of Washington. First up, moderate congressional Democrats appeared to win the months-long standoff within the Democratic Party as the House approved earlier this month the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill, sending it to President Biden's desk without the $1.75 trillion budget reconciliation bill that progressives had demanded be included as a package deal and House Democratic leadership had planned to pass in tandem. Far from dead, though, the Build Back Better reconciliation bill remains a focus for the president and Democratic leadership. There's too much in each of these bills to get into the details here, but check episode 25 from September for a deeper dive if you're interested. Separately, former District of Columbia Public Service Commission Chairman Willie Phillips was unanimously confirmed as a FERC commissioner by the Senate on November 16th via voice vote. His term will expire on June 30th, 2026. Well, with that national news out of the way, and in the famous words of Monty Python, now for something completely different. We're going to take a look backwards this month at a bit of a milestone in the establishment of competitive electricity markets. I'm your host, Rory Sweeney, and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn, besides the usual holiday festivities, what else makes this December important? Well, uh, first of all, welcome, Rory. Happy November to you. Hope you as well. well. <laughs> you as well. Thank you very much. And, and yeah, I, I should mention, as it's uh, mid-November, uh, uh, happy Veterans Day to uh, all, any uh, armed service uh, members who listen to our podcast. And again, thank you for your service, as always. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and for those of you enjoying Thanksgiving with families this year, please take time to you know, remember what all the things we sh- should be thankful for around this time of year, not to mention the least of which is making it through another year almost. So uh, that's that's certainly what's important about any December. But this December is particularly important and noteworthy because um, it represents a pretty historic anniversary in Pennsylvania. And we're going to have an episode today focused on the 25th anniversary of the electric generation Customer Choice and Competition Act of 1996 becoming law in Pennsylvania. December 3rd, 2021 is that 25th anniversary. The act literally changed decades of law and policy in Pennsylvania in which electric power generation was owned by the utility company and the prudence of all expenditures related to the construction and maintenance of power plants was evaluated by the Public Utility Commission. The Competition Act changed all that. Uh, The Competition Act basically took this historically vertically integrated monopoly and open power generation up for competition. And in today's episode, we're going to walk down memory lane and talk a little bit about why Pennsylvania made this move to competitive markets. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce to our listeners uh, our guests, and we have multiple this month. Um, The first guest I'll introduce is Chairman John Quain. Uh, John was appointed by Governor Casey in 1993, and he served under Chairman, or excuse me, under Governor Ridge as Chairman until 2001. Uh, John Quain, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Thank you for the invitation. Also joining us today is Jim Cauley. 
Jim Cauley was so good at the job of being a public utility commissioner. He get, got the job, I think, three times. Um, he first served a term from 1979 to 1985 and then was on the commission from 2005 to 2015, serving as chairman under Governor Rendell starting in 2008. Jim Cauley, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Hey, thank you, Glenn. I'm really happy to be a part of this. Finally, we have Gladys Brown Dutrell, uh, who's been at the PUC since 2013. It's hard to believe it's been that long, uh, but she came to the PUC following an epic run as a legal counsel in the PA Senate and was very involved with these issues from both the legislative side as well as the regulatory side. Gladys, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Thanks, Glenn. Happy to be part of this great panel. All right, so that, that's our virtual Mount Rushmore of PAPUC chairs. Um, and I should also note, uh, for those of you who don't know, I actually served on the, the Public Utility Commission from 2001 to 2005 and was both a chairman and a commissioner during that time. So uh, from time to time, as part of this conversation, I'm going to maybe interject a thought or two based on my own personal experience. But uh, all right, well, with those intros out of the way, uh, let's get started. John. Let's start at the very beginning. You were tapped by Governor Ridge to put together a bill to restructure the Pennsylvania electricity market. What was the key argument or turning point where you managed to get consumers and utilities together in agreement that giving up a monopoly was a good idea? Well, there, there, were, there were several, Glenn, as you can imagine, that the biggest one and first one was to make sure we kept everyone at the table. I, I had done a lot of negotiations with utilities and consumer groups and Almost always, they ended up with somebody walking out in a huff. And my, my marching orders from the governor was to get consensus on this legislation. We started with a blank sheet of paper. So we, we had like 35 to 45 different parties in the room at any one time. So we had up to 75 people in there. So trying to keep them all at the table was the first challenge and probably the biggest challenge. So we had two rules. The first rule was if you got up and left, you weren't invited back. And if anything that was in the draft bill that was put in on your behalf was taken out. And we, we did keep track of that. So I, I decided early on never to ask anyone at the table if they were for it or against it as we went through the bill. And it took us about three months to do the drafting. And we waited until the very end. And then I, I went in and talked to the governor. I said, I think it would be a lot harder for them to say no to you than to me. So let's invite everybody up to the governor's residence for breakfast. And we'll arrange the people around the table where I think the weak points are in between two stronger points. And then you go around the table, Governor, and say, are you with me? Are you with me? Are you with me? And, and, and it worked. All but, <laughs> all, but, all but one party said that they were with us. So Governor says we're taking a break. And so he and I walked out of the room. We talked about it. We thought, OK, we can probably roll over this in this one, one party. We went back in and said, OK, you're out. We're, we're, we're moving forward. Well, later that day, that party called and said, I, I want it. So we had not only consensus, we had unanimity. And we uh, went from that, that. That was the first time and the only time I really knew we had reached consensus on this point. We waited until the very end because I was terrified somebody was going to walk out. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I remember actually being at that breakfast, John, and I was like the young staffer sitting in the corner. And it was it was one of the more impressive displays of uh, negotiation and, uh, well, the whole process. I mean, I don't think probably enough folks give give John Quayne and his leadership enough credit in this. Um, just uh, watching him go through the process and lead those negotiations was a true feat. And then just to get, bring the governor in to seal the deal was, was very impressive. But um, at the end of the day, you got consensus. Yeah. 
and you were in that room an awful lot, as was Terry Fitzpatrick, who later became chairman. He was with the Senate at the time, so he deserves a lot of credit. I got a lot of good advice uh, on some very tough issues along the way, and you guys were great help. Yeah, well, and as you mentioned, Terry Fitzpatrick was in the legislature at the time, but also in the legislature at that time as a staff person was Gladys, uh, at the time, Gladys Brown, uh, now Gladys Brown Dutrell. So Gladys, what was what was your perspective sitting there as a staffer in the General Assembly as these issues were coming to you for approval um, in the fall of 20, uh, I guess it was in the fall of 1996, correct? Definitely fall 1996. Well, in terms of on my side, which was the Democratic caucus, we were not necessarily involved in the, the initial conversations, but we knew about what was going on. And also uh, Terry Fitzpatrick was a, a staff counsel at that time. Uh, in the Republican leader's office, and I was in the Democratic leader's office. So we knew of what was going on. So we were in the later part of the discussions where we saw language and we had hearings from the different, the Consumer Protection and Professional Licensure Committee and, and worked in terms of in that direction on this bill. It was exciting, challenging, but a little scary all at the same time, I think, for not only our members, but also the staff, because this was a big change. We were used to the vertically integrated type markets where generation was regulated. And the concern was, hopefully we're not making a mistake, but ultimately the challenge also was the fact that how high the prices were in Pennsylvania. John knows that well. We were 15% over the national average. That's not something that we wanted to be known for as a state. Um, So it was very interesting seeing all the back and forth. And we knew that the governor, that was definitely his focus. That's what he wanted done. And and to see it go all the way up until the very end in November, during the time when Sonny Die was truly a Sonny Die session where you got a lot of things done after the election. So uh, very interesting when I look back at all that. Yeah, exciting, challenging, and a little scary, I think is probably the best description of the legislation. Well, and yeah, general- and we should we should add that, you know, Chick Tooley, once we went over to the legislature, was just a terrific help. And there were so many delicate balances in that legislation. Everyone who had signed on to it said, I'm, I'm only signed on if it doesn't get amended. So we had to not only get the bill through quickly, we had to get it through both houses without amendment. Never had been done before, I've been told, nor have it, has it been done since. So the, the legislature just believed in us to know that we had done the job to make sure all the interests were properly balanced. And it was, it was kind of cool. We, we sent utilities in there with consumer advocate at the same time to argue for the bill. So they knew it was balanced. So that's, that's how we got it done. And I do have to pick up on that, Glenn, in terms of what John said. They were only on if it wasn't amended. I was one of those staffers that was drafting tons of amendments. <laughs> yes, you were. Tons of amendments. <laughs> that night, I had more people in my office going, you can't amend this. And I kept saying, calm down. I'm doing my job. I don't know if these amendments were passed. And they didn't, so... They didn't. Yeah, I remember there was at least a handful that got at least voted on on the floor. Is that? Am I remembering that correctly, Gladys? Yes, I, but yeah. they didn't pass. But I mean, I was doing my job. I, yeah, I needed to right. be able to, we needed to have a full discussion on the record, and we did. Yes, we did for one night, right? For one uh, night, <laughs> a long night, long night. <laughs> one very yeah. long night. Yeah. <laughs> so very good. All right. So 
Terrific. So, John, the bill was passed. Uh, you were chairman of the commission at the time, so it was kind of interesting. So you, you wrote the legislation, but then you actually had to implement the legislation. Right. And there were many tough decisions that were left to the discretion of the PUC as part of that bill. Um, and every electric utility in the state had to submit a restructuring plan, and the PUC uh, had to deliberate on them. And there were billions of dollars at stake, um, and it came down to a lot of horse trading. Can you just talk about that period um, you know, where you were having those conversations about stranded cost recovery and trying to otherwise implement uh, this very historic piece of legislation that had just passed the General Assembly? Yeah, the, the, the first company out of the box was, was Pico, now Exxon. Um, they wanted to be first, and a, a, an order passed, uh, three to two. I was in the minority, was very upset about it. The order was not properly balanced. It was immediately appealed and cross-appealed by all kinds of parties. And I saw the whole thing that we had done going down the drain because I was advised by my counsel, we'd be in court for at least 10 years over this. And we wanted competition to come right away. Well, I thought about it. I, was, I happened to be making a speech out in Houston. I forget who I was speaking to, but I, I asked if I could visit Ken Lay, who then president and chairman of Enron. And I, I had never met Ken before. And I and I went over to his office and said, look, I'm in town making a speech. I just wanted to introduce myself. I want to try to settle this order. Enron was, was a big player in the Pico market at that time and was just as unhappy with the order as was Pico, the consumer advocate, and just about everybody else. So I said, will you come to Harrisburg at my invitation to sit down with the then president of Pico, Corbin McNeil, and agree that you'll let me try to settle this, just like we did the legislation? So they both came to Harrisburg. I don't think I've ever said this to anybody. They both came to Harrisburg. We sat down and said, look, I'm going to have to get the other parties involved. Um, but will you, will you guys agree to do it? If I can say the two of you sit down, I think everybody else will follow. And they did. They followed with one caveat. There would only be a, sentiment, a, a settlement if every party in the case, and again, there was 30-some in the PICO case, if everybody agreed. So we would only have a settlement if there was nobody left out, nobody that disagreed with it. And so we worked on it and we got unanimity on that one too. And we did it five times after that. Each time we put an order out, it was immediately appealed. We immediately appealed back in the settlement. They, we'd sign the same kind of confidentiality agreement. Nobody would, could be left out. Everybody had to agree on the final settlement. So we did it six times in a row. I mean, really people with good hearts, good intentions, to do the right thing for the people and the businesses of Pennsylvania. I mean, it was a great example of how people could roll up their sleeves. You know, everybody gave a little, but everybody got a lot. And that's, yeah. you know, exactly the type of, you know, exactly the type of arena, you know, where good public policy gets done. Um, yeah. The big trade-off there, Glenn, to answer the other part of your question was, we got, we got the company to bring down strand investment as low as we could. And then, we couldn't get that all recovered in the seven years provided for in the acts. So we, we stretched the recovery out to nine, 10 years in some cases, I think 11 to one, one company case. But at the same time, we put rate caps on. Now, that caused problems for my colleagues later in life, as we found, as I'm sure Jim will talk about. <laughs> but rate, we, had, we had rates in place for nine to 11 years after the bill was passed. It was at least two years before that since there had been a rate case. So there was nobody. There was no competitors coming in because the rate caps were so low at that time that the rates were so low. So consumers, both businesses, industrial customers and residential consumers did very well during that period.
that, that right. Was, it would sound so simple at a high level, right? Yeah, um, right, right. But, but but there was literally billions of dollars at stake, and you know um, the the settlements allowed Pennsylvania to move forward a lot more quickly than they otherwise would have had. So that's that's Absolutely. great insight. Um, by the way, I'm not sure you told the governor's office about that Ken Lay uh, Corbin McNeil meeting, but uh, <laughs> I, I probably didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I, I think I think we said it was going to be confidential at the time, and uh, I'm sure. Well, I'm sure yeah. they wouldn't. Mind. But it was they 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 had the best interest of their companies at heart, too. And they wanted it to work and everybody wanted it to work. And that's what that was the magic behind all this. Everybody wanted it to work. All right. Let me bring Jim Cauley into the conversation. And uh, I should mention just like so we're walking through the history here. John left the commission in 2001. I was uh, honored to serve as his replacement. I had, uh, as you can tell, enormous shoes to fill. Um, you know, I kept uh, I kept the lights on for four years and then uh, uh, Governor Rendell got elected and his leadership team came in. And Jim Cauley, you did serve as Governor Rendell's chairman from 2008 to 2012. Um, you saw the rate caps rolling off. As John mentioned, that was a pretty big, important part of those original deals. But you were the chairman who had to sort of shepherd in the air when those rate caps were coming off and consumers were you know, feeling the impact as the case may be. Can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced during those years? I came back to the commission in 2005. I became chairman in, in 08, but I was certainly intimately involved with what we were going to do because, as we all know, uh, in about, uh, well, initially the way it was set up uh, was the rate caps that John mentioned were set uh high enough above the existing wholesale electricity rates to allow the competitive suppliers some so-called headroom. They would have some chance to buy the wholesale rate and sell it at a profit uh, below the rate caps. About 2000, 2001, the wholesale electric prices started rising and the fear was they were going to get above the rate caps so that when the rate caps came off, which they did uh, at different times with PPL being the last to uh, have stranded cost recovery end and therefore the rate caps come off. Uh, as we approached 2010, particularly with PPL, we really feared wholesale prices were going to get above the rate caps. And that would mean that retail electric prices would take a, uh, a, a spike. They would jump. And we certainly didn't want that. PPL was... Uh, interested enough in uh, mitigating that effect by, by filing a credits program. Uh, I'm not sure that's what they called it, but it allowed customers to uh, pay more than their electric bill ahead of time. And uh, PPL would would give them 6% uh, on, on the money that they were building up as credits that they could use after the rate caps came off. Uh, and at the same time, the Rendell administration was trying to get the, the electric distribution companies to kick into a, a fund that would help um, uh, mitigate the costs for ratepayers. I remember I remember talking directly to the governor about this. I mean, he he wanted he wanted time to try to implement uh, the fund. Uh, meanwhile, we had a due process adjudication going on at the same time where. A, Parties were opposing PPL's credit program for one reason or another. So, so we, but we couldn't wait too long because there had to be a period of time that people could pay enough in to build up their credits. 
Well, it was a happy ending because uh, uh, the wholesale prices uh, ameliorated. They did not get above the rate caps. The rate caps came over and it was a, there wasn't equal parity, but it was pretty close. So disaster was avoided. Our prayers were answered. Uh, The last of the rate caps came off and and off, uh, off we went. You know, as I look at that sort of period, particularly around 2008, um, there were there were some calls in that time for you know reexamination of some of sort of the bedrock principles of competition. You know, and you and your leadership at the commission, you know, largely resisted those calls and you know kept Pennsylvania on a steady course. And you know, I look I look at other states, and you know, that 2008 time period where, was a period where a lot of states were retreating you know, from, from the, the promise of competitive markets, but Pennsylvania didn't do that. And, you know, I give you, Jim, a lot of credit for that, but, you know, there were also some members in the General Assembly as well, and Governor Rendell as well deserves a lot of credit for sort of sticking to those, uh, sticking to the vision, uh, because as, as, as you predicted at the time, prices would ameliorate and, and get back down to more reasonable levels. And as a result of that, you know, Pennsylvania certainly bore the fruit, um, you know, through the through the next decade following your, your your term. Well, thank you, Glenn. And, you know, what I told the legislature, uh, you know, I, I extolled virtues of, of electric choice. But I also told them there's really no retreat here uh, without uh, very large rate increases, because if you try to retreat like Michigan and Virginia did, uh, you see, uh, not only was there a great outcry from people who wanted choice, but then you have to recreate a rate base uh, at uh, 2008 or 2010 uh, value levels. Uh, you know, so if you're going to increase the rate base, you know what's going to happen. Right. Rate, retail rates have got to go up substantially. So we, you know, a lot of people listen to that. I said it often enough. Yeah, no, for sure. All right. Um, let's fast forward to the the somewhat present. Uh, Chairman Dutrell, uh, you took over or you came to the commission in 2013. Uh, you've been there ever since. Um, we've had some interesting weather during your tenure. Uh, but uh, why don't you talk about your experience? I came actually in October of 2013. And so the polar vortex was that first winter. And I, I kept joking with uh, not only Rob Powson, who was the chair at the time, but anyone else that would listen with me, like, who ordered up this this winner for my first winner right. <laughs> as a commissioner? Uh, and we definitely had a challenge with the polar vortex because of the fact that people who were shopping, uh, some of them signed up for a variable rate products that were very good at the time when they were signing up for that. But of course, they didn't necessarily have the full understanding. And in some cases, it, it you know, maybe it was lack of information from the EGS. Um, but there were a lot of, because of, of the market and the increase of prices and the demand and, and the challenges in supply, you saw that increase in price and variable rates. And so what we needed to do as a commission was to put more consumer protections in place. Uh, the General Assembly was very upset with that. I remember Chairman Godshaw at the time, very upset, wanted some type of uh, legislation in place. What we were able to do as a commission in the spring of that of 2014 was to put uh, emergency regulations in place, which is very unusual. Anyone that knows the the regulatory, the legislative process, emergency regulations are not necessarily the norm. But the uh, independent, the Regulatory Review Act did provide for it. 
our emergency regulations were to put in a requirement that there was a certain time period that people could switch from whether it was a variable rate to a fixed rate or back to the default service provider or the, the EDC. And what we were finding out during the polar vortex is that it would take like a month for people if they said they wanted to switch back in order to save when they were getting these huge bills, it would take them too long. And so the savings that they thought they could have uh, received, of course, there was another month of high, high bills because of electric generation. We were able to put those emergency uh, regulations in place, grateful for that. That allowed for people to switch within a three-day period and then also allowed for more information, consumer protection to be put in place to educate the consumer. There was different notices, additional notices that the EGS has had to provide to consumers to say, your contract is coming up. So it was a, I think it was a, a six-month notice and then a three-month notice, but just more information to the consumers so that they can make better choices and switching to either another EGS or, or back to the default service provider. The PUC, first of all, has a great website, our PAPowerSwitch.com, that does provide a lot of information and avenue for resources for consumers. And we definitely provided more information and did a lot more outreach for consumers to get a better understanding. Um, unfortunately, people had to learn more about it before they were just signing up for a supplier. And then, you know, things were so great in terms of the prices or prices were so stable, put it that way, that they didn't think anything about it. Uh, but they really got scared in that winter of 2014. Um, so we, we were doing, we have been doing, I think, a great job in terms of educating consumers, getting our, our community um, communications personnel out there, commissioners out there, anytime we have the opportunity to just to educate consumers. Uh, and we can say now from the surveys that we have done, I think we did a survey back in 2016 to see if people knew. We were finding that people didn't know as much about the opportunity to shop for their generation supplier. And now we've seen more and more with more of the outreach that we have and also the just reinforcing the opportunity to shop or find out information, not necessarily shop on the website that the PUC has, the PA Power Switch, but just finding information where it, it's a site where you can just go to and then shop with a different EGS. I often think about, you know, what has made Pennsylvania different from other states when it comes to this issue. And I think, um, you know, certainly the uh, the chairman that are represented here and they're in Chairman Powelson and Chairman Fitzpatrick and Chairman Holland, you know, the regardless of the leadership of the commission, there's always been this commitment to, you know, consumer education as it relates to customer choice. And I think that's made a big difference. And, you know, Tom Charles and his team over in the comm shop have done a really great job, you know, keeping up with the times and getting relevant information into people's hands so they can make good decisions. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that. We usually do a rapid fire section now with our, our guest each month, but that wouldn't work well with three of them here. So instead, I'm just going to ask uh, some pointed questions and open the floor for responses from anybody. And I expect pointed answers. Okay. So it's been 25 years of ups and downs. What has worked well? Lower rates and a, and a strong competitive market. I'll second that on the lower rates. Not only were the, the initial uh, rate reductions that were ordered, but the price caps and the ongoing savings uh, have amounted in the billions. I, I've never seen a figure, but uh, uh, it, it certainly is in the billions of dollars. But the, uh, to me, there were two other very important accomplishments and how it's worked well. 
First and foremost for me is you insulated all of the expenses and cost overruns and maintenance of, uh, of power plants from captive rate payers. To me, that is the single most accomplishment of electric choice. Um, not only are cap not only captive customers don't have to pay those costs, uh, the plants don't run if they're not being operated efficiently. And that's been proven by great efficiency in the wholesale market. Thirdly, uh, the success of renewable energy. Uh, renewable energy, even with the Alternative Energy Portfolio Standards Act, would not be the success in Pennsylvania that it, that it has been and is going to be without uh, competitive suppliers. Utilities would never have done it uh, because they are just their rate making model is such that they don't do anything if they're not certain or very fairly certain that they can recover their costs and, and, and find that they're prudent in rate cases. So ring fencing of power plants, lower costs and the success of renewable energy. I would say that the ease of access, the ability to easily shop for generation supplier or switch back to your default uh, service provider the ease of that has become uh, so uh, convenient to consumers, so they don't, they don't find it burdensome. I think in the beginning, or I think earlier on when we were hearing these things, especially when the rate caps were coming off during those times that John was, was talking about earlier, people were concerned because during that time, there was, in this area where I am, in PPL's area, there was uh, indication of a 30% increase in electric cost. And so people were concerned about how pro how high their bills would go up. And then the education needed to give them a better understanding of how to shop. It's easier to access that information. So there's not necessarily the concern. People talk about it on a regular basis. I can go to my Pilates class and people say, hey, I heard about this electric generation supplier, you know, asking you questions. People are talking about it more. So that's very convenient. And then the fact of when I talked about earlier how it's easier to switch back and forth, that's very convenient as well. When um, uh, Jim talked about renewable energy, that wasn't that, that's an interest that people have, a demand that people have now, even though it was there earlier on when they had the ability to shop. Because people have that demand, you see more and more those type of products going online. So that's also very convenient. So I just say ease of access for the products that consumers want, the ability to go back and forth. They can go, they can switch back and forth within a year, one or two times, or they can have longer term products. It's just a lot more information, a lot more products for people to pick. Well, clearly, I'm going to the wrong gym because nobody asks me any of those questions at my gym. <laughs> you gotta go to a Pilates class. Uh, yeah, I don't do Pilates. <laughs> the gym I go to, everybody bitches about the Eagles. I mean, that's what I get. <laughs> at my gym. So, um, but you know, prices have dropped dramatically for Pennsylvania consumers relative to other states. But we haven't sacrificed reliability as part of that transition. And I mean, I remember actually having some conversations with Governor Ridge about this, and this was one of his concerns. It's like, how can we make sure? 
you know, that that next megawatt of generation is going to get built when you can't guarantee the recovery over 25 years. And that was a, that was one of the bigger overriding questions as it relates to this restructuring effort. And our emissions profile, I mean, you look at the carbon reductions, you look at the NOx reductions, you look at the SOx reductions that have occurred in Pennsylvania. Um, you can put those up against any state in the union. If, you know, you combine all those three things and yeah, it paints a real nice picture. That's for sure. Well, Glenn, I would add, you know, you're talking on the, the macro uh, side of things, and I've mentioned this anecdote before, but on the, on the micro side, uh, I, I like to talk about my, my friend uh, in Wilkes-Barre, Butch Modzaleski, uh, if you're listening to this, Butch, and I know you're not, but uh, if so, shout out to you. <laughs> I every couple of months he calls me up. He's an older gentleman, calls me up and says, uh, let's do that electricity thing again. And we go on the website and check for the best rates and uh, find something that works for him. And he always likes as long of a term as possible and doing only fixed rate and makes him feel good. And it's a good conversation that we have. Um, and uh, yeah, we do it every couple of months when uh, when he gets the letter that his his current service is about to uh, to expire. So uh, well, we love you, Butch. Keep up the good work. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let him know. So the, the the other side of that, with the benefit of hindsight, would you say that Pennsylvania is better off for passing the Competition Act in 1996? And as a corollary to that, has competition worked in PA? Would it have been, uh, could it have succeeded on its own, or did it require other support from both in and out of the Commonwealth? Um, so I'm, I'm going back to my times as a staffer, and, and as I stated earlier when I said it was a little scary because we weren't sure and we wanted to make sure that we weren't making the biggest decision, biggest, you know, mistake ever. But as I sit here as a, as a regulator, I say, I think it did work. It worked well. Of course, there were things that needed to be tweaked along the way as we talked about, you know, the polar vortex. Um, but there were also things that we probably did not anticipate as as the unintended consequences that were beneficial to the consumers and as technology has changed and the information to be disseminated to consumers is easier to access um, that that is beneficial now we also probably did not uh, assume at that time and john can probably attest to this that we we would be able to drill for natural gas uh, the marcellus shale that we have here in pennsylvania that has definitely made um, generation prices uh, lower for consumers and been beneficial because it, we know that in 2008, when those, those uh, 2008, 9, and 10, when those uh, price caps were coming off, uh, we were seeing those higher prices and we were not necessarily um, able to drill in the way we are or have been able to do so today. But I think it worked in terms of giving people the choices necessary. I, I don't know what, what would have happened if we had not done this in Pennsylvania. I'll pick up from there, Glenn, if that's all right. I, I, I think what would have happened is we just would have been the same old, same old. We would continue to do rate cases. Rates would have continued to go up. Economic development would have suffered. I, I think there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that competition not only worked, it was a huge success. Uh, Jim, you said you don't, you, you, you've never seen a figure. When I, when I left office, we were calculating at the commission. We had already saved, in two, by 2001, $4 billion. Rob Pallas and I had a conversation when he was chairman. number was up to nine some, at some point when he was chairman. I don't know if the commission continues to keep, keep track of that number, but, but the numbers are just huge. The alternatives are huge. And Rory, to the other part of your question, could we have done this without support outside of Pennsylvania? There's no doubt in my mind that PJM played an integral role in this. I remember sitting down with Phil Harrison saying, 
you know, I don't understand half of what you folks do. And I know you could screw this up if you wanted to. I need your help. I need you as a partner in this. Same thing with FERC. Betsy Moeller was chair of FERC, went down to see her, said the same thing. I can't do this without FERC not, you know, not intervening and getting in our way. We have to be able to go our, our own way here and be the model for the country. And it turns out not only were we the model for the country, but we were internationally the model for a long time as well. I was invited probably like 15 different countries to talk about the Pennsylvania success. It was just, just a huge success in people's mind. It's sort of faded over time because now it's just sort of part of the, part of the landscape, but we were, we were trailblazers at the time and, and we have a lot to be proud of for taking the chance to, to be brave and, and do, do it for the benefit of all customers, not just residential, but industrial and commercial customers as well. My viewpoint, I think might be a little different. Um, I have given this an, an, Enormous amount of thought while I was a commissioner and 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 since my term ended in 2015, um, the General Assembly, I think, made it clear that it wanted choice to work for not only large commercial and industrial customers who, in fact, have taken great advantage of it, but it wanted it to succeed for residential and small commercial customers as well. It's gotten to the point where the residential and small customers really are not benefiting. The the participation numbers for residential customers is is way below the 40% peak before the polar vertex in 2014. And, and I I will respectfully say that I, I, I suggest that I don't think customers really have any reason to be engaged uh, and, or pay attention. Uh, they don't hear about this anymore. Uh, it's not uh, a topic of discussion. Uh, I, I think Pennsylvania did the best job from, and I was I was there. I saw what a great job that John Quain you did. Uh, you picked up the cudgels after that, Glenn. You it, it was extremely well implemented. When I went back on the commission in 2005, I had almost 300 boxes of documents implementing Electric Choice in Pennsylvania. Nobody did it as well. But I have to say that the biggest flaw, uh, and maybe it was a part of the, the deal you had to make to get it done, John, but default service may have had a useful part to play initially uh, before you could get a number of EGSs uh, uh, licensed and, every, and you, you got the, uh, the uh, cost recovery, mitigation, uh, restructurings all done. So it, it served a purpose at the beginning, but 25 years later, it is, it is the main cause of why electric choice is just on very few residential small customers' radar. It just isn't there. Why is that? Well, the problem is, is that you, 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 you have the EDC with its brand name in competition with with uh, suppliers, many of whom are not known. Uh, and, and as a result, uh, you have a situation where uh, I think you've got a market design now uh, for the weakest of players and, and the larger players, financially larger players, are not being allowed to do what they need to do to provide the innovations that the legislature wanted. I mean, there, there, there are other there are other problems uh, other than this. I, I could talk about 
the fact that the price to compare really is an apples to oranges comparison with market prices. Uh, that's a separate problem. But we, it all, for me, it all gets back to default service. Um, we were well on our way to changing that when the polar vortex hit. And I think we had a fair way to do it. But, but let me give you an argument that, I, that didn't dawn on me until I uh, knew I was going to be on this program. I was present in, on 1184 when AT&T was broken up. And the way it was done by the Federal Justice Department and the United States District Court judge in Washington who oversaw the breakup is that you created the seven baby Bell telephones at the time, Bell of Pennsylvania was a part of Bell Atlantic and the independent telephone companies. and then you had the long distance carriers, AT&T and many others were going to be the long distance carriers. What's my point? My point is, is that when that happened, Bell of Pennsylvania as the local exchange carrier, not only wasn't allowed to provide long distance service, uh, it was not the default carrier. In other words, Bell didn't get to provide local service and long distance service until the long distance carriers could lure customers away for long distance service. No. So, so what did we create on the electric side? Well, the local distribution carrier gets to provide as a default service, the service that the legislature created as the function of competitive suppliers. And it just, it may have need, needed at the beginning, but it's not needed anymore. Uh, and we ought, to, we ought to work our way away from that, or we're never going to receive, be the recipient, or we're never going to achieve the innovations the legislature wanted. And that have happened in the, in the telecommunications market uh, since 1184. We are stuck 25 years later with essentially the the EDCs are effectively in control and they do it primarily with the bill. And despite many efforts by the competitive community to uh, have supplier consolidated billing by the financially strong ones who who are capable of doing it, the commission hasn't allowed that. And in fact, have allowed the EDCs now to to, uh, allow at least the first energy companies to bill for non-commodity goods and services on their utility bill. And yet the, the, the suppliers can't do the same. So it's, it's a situation where we have a system where the, the EDCs are, have the dominant role with their brand name. And the suppliers are simply, even the strong ones, are not going to make the financial investment in Pennsylvania in this kind of a situation when they don't have explicit commission authority to provide a separate bill and provide services on the bill, which in effect is a great consumer protection because if, because now customers, they got the bill directly from their supplier, they'd say whom they're receiving their supply from and they'd be able to complain. And if they didn't like the service they got, they would fire them and go to somebody else, just like they do with cellular service or any other kinds of service. So I'll stop venting at that point. I love the passion that um, we all bring to this conversation and, and especially that of uh, Jim Colley. 
Um, he's very passionate about this issue. But when I think also, I, I have to remember in terms of the conversations that were held in the General Assembly at that time when passing the legislation. That's why you see the word choice in there. Now we can have different interpretations of what the General Assembly thought about choice, but what I recall is they definitely were, go back to what I thought, it was a little scary making this big change in terms of legislation. They wanted that safety net. They wanted the choice by the consumer. And when we had the polar vortex, Jim's right. We were. The General Assembly was moving into uh, changing the dynamics of this this uh, legislation to require that everyone would have to shop for generation. And when the polar vortex came, there was that drastic change to concern of there was no there was no control by the consumer to try to mitigate in any way the fact that they were on uh, variable rate plans and how. High, high the prices went up. So what I recall is choice was the big thing for the consumers, being able for them to choose. I also, with that, have always talked in terms of we never count the numbers in terms of people shot. We only count it in terms of people actually going to an EGS. We never say whether or not, we never find out whether or not people have researched and looked online and, and made the decision for that particular time for that their particular household, whatever serves them the best. So there's a lot more conversation that needs to be had to, to discuss the whole thing. Um, I understand what Jim is saying. And there there has definitely been that conversation and concern that the default uh, service provider, what role do they really play at this point? This really is a trip down memory lane now for me because I haven't thought about some of these issues for 25 years, I guess. Um, we, we did talk about eliminating default service during those conversations, both in terms of the legislations and with each of the individual restructuring. Wasn't, wasn't nearly enough support to do that because of what Gladys has said. I mean, people were afraid. They were afraid not only because of price, but because of reliability. Now, Maybe, maybe it's, I have no problem with taking a look at anything. And in fact, every, every commission should every year do a rehab on, on, on the whole uh, law and say, what's working right, what's not, and hear from everybody, hear from the, the, the competitor community as well as the consumer community and say, is it time to make this choice? Or is, is that concern still there? I mean, Gladys, you're, you're absolutely, I always argue the choice was the choice to stay with your default supplier or you choose to move. Both are a choice. And we didn't want to eliminate the more conservative players, uh, residential, commercial, industrial, who thought, hey, I, I just assume stay with my default supplier. I have no problem with looking at that again now and saying, okay, the market has developed enough that we don't need that any longer. But that's a hard road to hold. That's a hard road to hold. Yeah, and just maybe to, to to note the changing complexion of Pennsylvania too since 1996. I mean, I forget how many electric utilities we had in 1996, John, but I'm guessing it was like 11 or 12, yeah. um, and many of them owned electric generation at the time, uh, or at least portions thereof. Um, and as we go into 2022 here, um, I'm pretty sure there might be an exception out there somewhere. I mean, first of all, there's been tremendous consolidation among the utilities. That number's probably down to five or six. Um, and I don't think any of them own generation uh, in any parts of their business. Um, so, I mean, certainly the utilities don't own generation anymore, but right. some companies like Exelon, First Energy, PPL, 
you know, kept separate affiliates that were in the generation business, um, you know, at least as it relates to those companies, which are the biggest electric companies and electric utilities in Pennsylvania, they've all, they've all spun off their generation. So that, that could, you know, certainly have impacts on all, you know, some of the political dynamics around some of these conversations for sure. Given the experiences that you've all had looking ahead, what advice would you give to future commissioners and or chairman of the commission related to Pennsylvania and its restructured electricity market? It was a surprise to me once I became chairman, how much power you actually have. You have an enormous power to affect every business, commercial property and residential customer in a big way in the Commonwealth. It's an enormous responsibility and enormous power. And I, the advice I would give is for commissioners and chairmen to, to look strongly at how they should properly exercise that power. But the important thing is to remember, it's not you. It's the chair that you sit in. And a lot of people get that confused when they get up there and they think they want the headline. They want their name in the paper. They want to be interviewed on TV. And they forget the power is in the chair. The power is for the people. And the power is there to be exercised responsibly for the benefit of the residents of Pennsylvania and the businesses of Pennsylvania. So I I think uh, my advice to future chairs is part of what we were just discussing, that um, there's a lot of information out there and the conversations of what is best for continuing the Electric Choice Act and providing those resources and that information to consumers and And all that takes everyone coming to the table. And because as technology is changing, as consumer demands are changing, as what consumers are looking for in terms of a product is changing, uh, all that is important to continue to discuss, to looking for uh, the best answers for the consumers. As we see, you know, changes in the energy market, uh, you know, the big issue is, is what you know, increases will be there in prices for the transmission that we are going to see changes coming on because of all of the renewable energy and things of that nature. Uh, the the consumer's pocketbook wallet will be impacted in some way. And so the conversations need to continue um, because there's just too much information out there to ignore that. And also the concern, consumer protection is still the key. I, I agree with John that the role of the, the chair is can be heady at times, but it should be one where we remember that we're here to protect the consumer, whether we're sitting as the chair or sitting as one of the commissioners, because it takes all of us to get a majority in some form or fashion. Uh, Well, I'll tell you, I got some great advice when I was hired in 1975 by Senator Franklin Curry to help rewrite the public utility laws that hadn't been looked at since 1937. He said to me, uh, almost all laws after they've been in existence for 25 or 30 years need a substantial review and, and, and reforms. Uh, same as needed with the Electric Choice Act. Uh, and it's going to require uh, interest and leadership in the legislature to do that. Uh, and failing that, and in any event, I would advise future chairmen and commissioners that you, you've got to interpret the Electric Choice Act as giving the commission broad authority to make the act work. You can't be looking for specific authority to do a lot of things. It's like any law. It was written 
broadly to accomplish a specific public interest goal. Uh, and, and that in, certainly includes innovative products like renewable products uh, that are, are surging in, in the national marketplace. And it's going to be suppliers who are going to do it like they have in the past. So you've got to, a commission has to give constant care and attention to this act. You just, just can't just let it function on its own. I mean, I gave umpteen speeches and my colleagues did too. You've got to continue that. You've got to punish the miscreants. There are very few of them, but they're you got to punish those, particularly and protect consumers, but you've got to make the act work by, again, broadly interpreting your authority. Uh, one of the problems that you, you, you're going to have to work with the FCC to get rid of this telemarketing problem. There, there are only a few bad apples in the supplier bunch that are doing this, but they're giving everybody, including the commission, uh, a, a bad name. So uh, th- that's, my, that's my advice to this commission and future ones. I must say that the way that things are going on the, on the, on the residential and, and small commercial front, uh, suppliers are getting very discouraged because they don't feel they're getting the kind of support at the commission that they need. My advice is to future commissions would be to pay attention to FERC and, and PJM. And Pennsylvania has largely enjoyed the benefit of you know PJM and FERC supporting the policies that Pennsylvania has been looking to advance. And there's been, I'm not going to go into the details, but there's been a series of orders from you know, the commission recently, because serious decisions from PJM recently that are really, I think, going to challenge Pennsylvania's competitive model going forward. You know, you look at the history of competition, we've talked a lot about what it made successful, but, you know, one of the, you know, I think top five reasons of why it's been successful in Pennsylvania is the ability to attract, you know, at-risk capital to invest in facilities that are going to, you know, power reliability and provide consumers what they want. Um, that money needs to keep flowing um, in order for this success to continue. And I really generally worry about some of the policies we're seeing, um, you know, just putting a stop to that, quite frankly. Um, PJM, they deal with a lot of important issues. Um, you know, PJM, uh, this is this is kind of an interesting stat, and, and, and the PUC pointed this out in their commission uh, comments on uh, on the transmission ANOPER. Pennsylvanians in 2019 and 2020 paid more for transmission than they did for generation. Uh, which is kind of a remarkable um, statistic. I think, John, when you were there, transmission was less than 10% of the bill. Um, yeah. yeah, and now it's more than generation. So um, there's wow. there's some big consumer impacts going on um, and decisions that are being made there. So my advice to future commissions and commissioners and chairman is to pay attention to FERC and PJM. We usually have a section at the end with with two minutes of advice and, and some final thoughts, but I feel like we kind of already hit all of that. I will give everybody an opportunity. If there's any last comments that you'd like to say, uh, go for it right now. Otherwise, um, this has been a really interesting topic, and I, I think uh, it would be great to talk about uh, the default service question again sometime in the future. So thank you, Jim, for giving us another episode theme for sometime in the future. Any any other last thoughts? Thank you for putting this together. It's been a pleasure to be with my colleagues again. and. With you two guys, I like I said off off the record, I I do listen to you all the time. You provide a service, and you really do an excellent job. So thank you. Well, John, I just want to clarify that this is definitely on the record. So and we're, we're just... <laughs> no, we will I, use I, those I, words, John. I meant I meant I meant when I said it before before been on the record. No, oh. I, I I do believe that. I think I mean I I do listen to you, and you 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 provide a good variety. And a lot of interesting guests, and uh, hopefully your your uh, audience will think that we were as well. <laughs> <laughs>
Appreciate that very, very much. Thank you. Anybody else, Jim or Gladys? Uh, let me just say, join in uh, what John had said. Uh, it was great to be on this podcast and uh, we're excited here at the commission in terms of the 25th anniversary. Uh, you know, as a staff, a young staff person in the General Assembly, I not never thought I would be sitting here in this position, taking on the responsibilities of, of making sure that uh, the statute that's in place is is continuing, but also uh, needing to look at what needs to be changed. And and I, I take seriously what has been said by all of our panelists. Um, in terms of differing opinions, because it needs to be said. We need to continue to discuss it, to look at what's best for the consumer. I think that's how we got to the Electric Choice Act in the first place. We were looking to see what changes need to be made in the market. Um, And I think we'll continue to do that. So thank you for the invitation. And uh, I'll second that. Uh, Glenn, this is a wonderful uh, thing you're doing here. It was the 27th podcast. That alone is a great achievement. Uh, Thanks for letting me uh, vent my passions. Uh, And and again, uh, I want to make it clear uh, that I, I, uh, my friend Gladys and I have talked about these issues for a long time. And I know she's only got one vote and I know she's been in dissent often. Uh, So I don't mean to blame her. The commission uh, needs to be at full strength. uh, And that brings all the uh, the viewpoints and experience that uh, were intended so long ago. Uh, and electric choice is just one of many contentious issues. Thanks for allowing us to uh, put our two cents in, Glenn. And you're sitting here, you have a podcast with two two uh, former chairmen who were appointed by Republican governors and two former chairmen that were appointed by Democrat governors. And, you know, the, the bipartisan commitment to competitive markets in Pennsylvania has really been um, an absolute essential part of the program and a distinguishing feature. Um, and I think you heard it here today. Um, you know, there's there's certainly always opportunities for debate, discussion about about you know, how exactly to go about it, but the overall commitment and dedication uh, to the proposition that competitive markets for electricity make a better Pennsylvania than the regulated monopoly of the past, I think is there. It's deep, it's bipartisan, and it, it, it sets Pennsylvania apart. Well, thanks again to our guests for aligning their schedules to make this historical look back happen. And of course, thanks to our audience for listening as always. Uh, and so until next time, as always, be excellent to each other. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.